good to see you this morning. God is good all the time. Yes, even this morning, he's being good, isn't he? Um, <clears throat> Jamie, no, no real response. Just know that before I die, <laughs> when you're least expecting it, <laughs> lightning bolts will be falling from the sky on you. <laughs> so, so just lay awake at night worrying about that, okay? That, that'll make me happy. <laughs> Um, you know, sometimes uh, the reason we quit dreaming, and that's what we've been talking about this for several weeks now, and I, I just want to keep going on with this, but sometimes the reason we quit dreaming is because we've gotten stuck in something very painful in our past. I mean, I, I, I have met people like this. There was something really bad that happened to them or something they were involved in years and years and years and years ago and it's like now we can't get past that and for all practical purposes their life ended at that point and they're just kind of stuck there and they can't get out and it'd be very difficult to uh, latch on to God's dream if you were stuck in your past the apostle Paul was a man with a painful past he's introduced to us in, in Acts chapter 7 uh, he's called Saul at that point. He was a, a young man who was standing by and kind of condoning everything that was happening to uh, Stephen as Stephen was being stoned the year is about 31 A.D. And so in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, these are the first words in the Bible concerning this man Saul. It said, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. There he is. He's taking care of the coats while his friends do the dirty work. They're stoning Stephen. He wasn't just a guy who um, held coats. Uh, in fact, as you read the next three or four verses, you're going to go into chapter 8. And you find out more about this man named Saul. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church. Entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. When Paul was doing this, or Saul was doing I'm going to say Paul instead of Saul sometimes, and Saul instead of Paul sometimes. So uh, you're just going to have to forgive me for that, but uh, they're the same people. He really did think he was doing the right thing. But later on in that year, that same year, 31 A.D., he's on his way to Damascus. This is Acts chapter 9. He is confronted by Jesus, the risen Jesus, on the road to Damascus. And from that point on, things were different for Saul. Paul, or Saul, describes his life to an angry mob in Jerusalem. It would be 58, 31, 27 years later. 27 years later, he still remembers exactly what it was like to be himself 27 years ago, holding the coats of people who were stoning Christians and being the guy who was more or less in charge of the persecution of Christians in and around Jerusalem. He remembers it very well. Acts chapter 22, verses 3 and 5. This is 27 years later. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, 
but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. I persecuted this way. And you notice way is capitalized there, and that was one of the ways that uh, the Christian movement would be uh, referenced in, at this particular time. It would be called people of the way. He says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. As also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify, from them I also received letters to the brethren and started off uh, for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. So he's talking about that trip that he was making to Damascus. And he had made many such trips to other places before that time, I believe. But uh, he was on his way, and that's when all of this, uh, uh, this confrontation of Jesus came. Three years later, he has to repeat his story again to Agrippa. He's in a lack of trial type situation. He's before King Agrippa. And King Agrippa is reviewing the decision that's been made three years previous when Paul made the statements in, in verse 20, or chapter 22. Now we're in front of Agrippa, Acts 26, 9 through 11. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So Paul is thinking back over his life, and he goes back to that time. We're talking about 31 years, yeah, it would be 30, 31 years later. After all, he hasn't done any of this for 31 years, but he still remembers it. It's still fresh in his mind, and it still gives him some pain. And then just a few years after that, we're talking about 65 A.D., he's very close to the end of his life. And he writes to Timothy about this, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. I am the chief of sinners. One of the other translations will read that way. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And Paul said, man, you want to talk about sin? You want to talk about sinners? He said, I'm like, I'm like the head sinner. I'm like the, the main guy. I'm like the sinner on steroids. So he, and he's not happy about it. It's, it's very painful to him that, that he has been that person. Well, he had a painful past, but God had a dream for him. And Paul had to let go of that painful past. He did let go of that painful past, and he latched on to God's dream for himself. He had a choice. He could have spent the rest of his life in regret and shame and hiding out somewhere on the hills. But Paul looked at the choices, and he knew what he had to do. And so now we come to the words of Philippians chapter 3, 13 and 14. This is how Paul describes his life. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. He says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I haven't arrived. I haven't, I, I haven't accomplished everything that God has intended for me. I, I don't think I'm the, I'm the guy or something. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press on toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
Well, he looks back. He said, man, i got to forget all that stuff. I can't, let that, I can't get mired down. I can't get stuck in what happened 25, 30, 35 years ago. I can't get stuck there. I've got something else I've got to do. I press on toward the mark, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And like Paul, we need to forget the things which are behind us. We need to reach forth. We need to press toward the mark. Or the high prize, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We need to make God's dream for us our dream too. There's all kinds of obstacles that keep us from dreaming God's dream. In past weeks, we've, already, we've talked about some of those. I, I, if you go back about three or four weeks, I think we talked about discouragement, especially in the case of Joseph. We talked about a, a kind of blindness uh, and, and inability to see God's dream for ourselves. And today we want to talk about the pain of our past. What is a painful past? And when I, when I use this, I, I, I'm thinking of basically two things. It's a two-sided coin, this pain business is. It may be that it's something that we have done in the past that is so evil, so perverted, so selfish, so malicious, so destructive, so deceitful, so petty, so greedy, so foolish that we are now filled with shame and self-hatred for what we have done. And it's possible for people to get kind of stuck in that, in that area. That they just can't get over what they've done. They, they, they would never would have thought about themselves maybe early on in life, but somehow or the other they got to that point that, and they did some things that they just cannot get past. And so they're filled with shame and self-hatred. They can't believe that uh, they could ever be forgiven. And the truth is, they may not believe that they should be forgiven. Maybe they deserve all the agony and all the pain that they're experiencing today. There are millions of people with a painful past. It cripples them and blocks them from dreaming God's dream. It might have to do with addiction. It might have something to do with molesting some innocent person. It might have to do with gambling or abortion or divorce or affairs, just being unfaithful. Paul's problem was that he was a murderer. He had the mentality of a religious terrorist. You know, we, we watch these uh, people. We call them terrorists. We watch these people today and we're where in the world does that come from? But I'm, I want to tell you something. That mindset is not too much different what the Apostle Paul is describing about himself. It was religious reasons, his faith in God that led him to do the horrible things that he did. And so Paul's problem was he was a murderer. The pain that he was feeling was not just a physical pain, but it was a pain of the heart and the soul, even though he had quit those things as a young man. So that's one side of it. Maybe I'm the perpetrator. Maybe I've, I've done some things that I just, I, I can't believe. But the other side of it is, is this, that if there's a perpetrator, there's always a victim, isn't there? Maybe it was something that was done to us. We weren't the perpetrator, but we were the victim. Who were Paul's victims? Let's stop and think about this. I wonder how many orphans there were in the church in Jerusalem because of what Paul had done uh, during that period of time. I wonder how many widows there were. I wonder how many businesses were empty and abandoned, you know, the, the, the windows busted out. I wonder how many uh, fields were all grown up and all that because people had to get out of that area because of what Saul or Paul was doing. They were the victims. In fact, it was, it was so bad that when the Apostle Paul finally did turn around and come back, 
he tries to go back to Jerusalem and he tries to meet with the, with the, with the disciples there, with the church. And you remember what happened the first time he goes back? They don't want anything to do with him. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. Let's just read this. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. But they were all afraid of him. Well, small wonder for that. Not believing that he was a disciple. I can understand why they would feel that way about him. So who are the victims in our day and time? Well, I think if you are raised in a, in a household, if you live in a household where there is someone with a serious addiction, if you happen to be married to that person, I, I think you understand what it means to be a victim. Uh, there's one guy that I think of in particular. Man, he just stands out in my mind. He's somebody I met in Detroit. And uh, I knew his son very well, and I knew him kind of through his son. He was what you would call a weekend alcoholic. And you could never get this guy to admit that there was any kind of a problem because he worked five days a week at General Motors and held down a job. And, you know, he didn't drink uh, Monday through Friday, but, man, Friday night he came home and he was gone for the weekend. And the things he did to his family, the weird, incredibly destructive things he did to his family on the weekend, and then somehow or the other he kind of got it together Sunday afternoon and he was ready to go back to work on Monday. But his family didn't know what had happened to him. They dreaded the weekends. Well, sometimes that's, uh, that's, uh, that's how it all happens. Uh, he thought he was not an alcoholic because he could control it from Monday through Friday, but he was doing a tremendous amount of damage. Maybe uh, you've been in a household where there's been a lot of molestation. Maybe from a relative, a brother, or a sister. Maybe from a teacher or a scout leader or, or whatever. I mean, the, all the, the, those are things that happen to victims. I think of children who've been abandoned as a result of divorce or suicide. I think of adults who have been left bitter and alone by divorce. I think uh, also there are some people who uh, have experienced a lot of pain at the hands of a church. And I'll tell you, church people can fight like nobody else in the world. They're good. We're good. I don't say they, it's us. Maybe you were raised in a hellfire and damnation type church. Maybe you came from a family where your parents are super, super critical. Or your mate is super critical. There's a uh, little book written by Shel Silverstein. Uh, it, it's a book of little poems. It's called The End of the Sidewalk. I think that's uh, what the name of that one is. But there's this poem in there about almost perfect is the name of the poem. And it's about this person that, regardless of what happened, whatever you did for her, and, and it turns out that in the poem it, it is a woman, no matter what happened, she would always say, almost perfect, but not quite. And people were str struggling, 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 trying to make her happy, trying to do the thing, and all she could ever say, well, that's almost perfect, but not quite. And then the final lines of the poem are a lady who's going to judgment. <laughs> and you hear the voice of God, almost perfect, but not quite. Sometimes if you're raised in that kind of home, maybe not terrible things are happening, but there are things where you, you, you can, you know, you can, you can, perfectionism can be abusive to people. And whether you were the perpetrator or the victim or whether you were both, and sometimes 
um, people who have been victims turn out to be perpetrators later on. That's just how it is. But whether you were the perpetrator or the victim, you may have a painful past. And you may not even realize it. You ever hear people talk about being sick? You know, I didn't realize how sick I was until I got better. Because, you know, sometimes that stuff just comes on kind of slowly, just in little bits and pieces, and you're just as sick as can be, but you don't know it. You just think that's normal. Well, I think that's not only true with people in physical sense, but also true with people in their spirits, spiritual sense. You may, be, may be, have had a very painful past. You haven't even realized it yet. And you may not realize the extent to which it has affected you. Our past does impact our present. Our past does impact our future, both in a positive way and a negative way. It just depends on what that past has been. And, and this is biblical. I mean, this is what the Bible says. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 18, just to give you an example, uh, this is a statement made by God about himself. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. You know, God can forgive anybody's sin. He can forgive sins. But there, and, and, and you can be all right from that standpoint. But the consequences of what you've done may carry on for three or even four generations. Amazing, isn't it? And then on the positive end, I mean, we could just look to the, I don't know if it's to the left or the right here, but the one, Proverbs 22 and 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The Bible's telling us something here that, you know, what we receive as young people, as children, there's a seed that's planted there. And you know what? When the seed is good, it's like you can't get away from it. I mean, you can, and you do, and some people do, but it's always there, and it's always calling you back. Train up a child in the ways you go. Plant the seed. And when he is old, the seed will still be there. It will still be talking to him and still be pulling him back. And so there's, uh, you know, our, the pain that we experience is going to affect both our present and our future, sometimes in positive ways, sometimes in negative ways. But the past does not hold final say over our present or our future. God has given us the power to decide. He's given us the power to choose. And the good news is that we have a choice. And there's good news in the fact that we have a chance to change, the power to change our present and our future. We can let go of a painful past and we can dream God's dream for us. So now... Four things I just want to tell you. How do we let go of a painful past? Just four things I want to say here. Four things that we have to do if we're going to let go of a painful past. And there's probably more. Maybe a thousand things could be said about this, but I'm just going to give you four here to think about. The first one is this. Acknowledge that the pain is there. At least admit that you're hurting. Admit that there is something wrong. And that's just common sense. You can't let go of something uh, that, quote, doesn't exist. You can't let go of something that doesn't exist. But if you never acknowledge that it does exist, then you're stuck with it. It's yours. And you may never let go of it. The first steps of the, of the 12 steps. And, and you know, we, we've got uh, two or three groups meeting here at the building now, and some on Sunday and some on, uh, some on Tuesday night. I think we have a group meeting on Tuesday night. 12-step groups. The James groups are basically 12-step groups. And, you know, the first two or three or four steps of the 12 steps 
is about getting past denial and finally acknowledging that there is something wrong and that you need help. It's hard for most people to admit because we all want to be all right. We want other people to think we're all right so we don't go around advertising what's wrong with ourselves and we don't want people to know. But the first step to getting healthy is to say, I'm hurting. There's something wrong. And that's scripture. I think about David, the man after God's own heart. And, I, and you know, he's responsible for the Psalms. And if you, if you read the Psalms closely, you're going to find out something here. David had no problem at all with saying, I'm hurting. I mean, I just went through and counted up the Psalms. I listed them here. I, I, I'll give them to you. It's 11 Psalms where David spends most of the Psalms saying, I am hurting. 13, 22, 31, 38, 42, 44, 58, 69, 77, 88, and 109. All of them. The main theme of those, of those chapters in the psalm, David is saying, I am hurting. He's acknowledging his pain because I think he realized you, you, can't, you can't get rid of it until you admit that it exists. Here's the second thing we have to do. We have to seek help. You know, we didn't get into our present uh, predicament by ourselves. We had help. In fact, uh, we had help from sources. Uh, there are some obvious ones. I mean, you, you, everyone's got a friend. that would, you went With that friend, you're in trouble, okay? You already knew you're going to be in trouble. Or, or you go to this particular place, you know there's going to be trouble. Uh, there are just people who, who influence us. But, you know, we have, uh, we have help from sources that maybe you don't, some people don't even realize. The Apostle Paul was writing to the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5. And he, he makes reference to one of the sources of help. He says, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. Writing to the church here at Thessalonica. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you. And our labor would be in vain. And he's talking about a source of help here. He says, the tempter will help you right in. The tempter will help you, take you right there. You don't have to do it alone. He'll help you. Luke chapter 22, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And this is uh, in, the, in the upper room, I believe, is where this is. Luke 22, it's 31 and 32. Jesus talking to Simon Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so there is a... a Satan, he wants to sift us like wheat. And Jesus told Simon Peter, he says, you know, I've, I, but I've prayed for you so that you could be strengthened. And when you are strong, turn back and, and help your brothers with this. So, you know, th there's all kinds of help here. But the fact that we might have been helped into our present predicament doesn't lessen our responsibility in any way. We still have to own our own problems. Still have to make the decisions to and take the steps and still have to ask for help. We still have responsibility for all that. And the help we are seeking, what is that? That is the help that comes from God and his people. In Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Later on in the Psalms, uh, David talks about something. He, he, he talks to his own soul. This is kind of odd. I don't know if you ever talk to yourself like this or not. But this is Psalm 103, verses 1 and 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself. And let all that is within me bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. 
And then he starts to list the benefits, and there are five of them as you go on through the, the following verses, but we're going to stop before we get through all five of them. But he says, forget not all his benefits, who forgives your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. And here's number four. I love this one because this, this is kind of who redeems your life from the pit. You, you ever think my life's the pits or I'm in a pit? <laughs> Man, you know, that, that's like uh, that's how we describe uh, I'm, I'm in the pit. And what David says about God, he, he redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with loving kindness and mercy. He satisfies your mouth with every good thing so that your youth can be renewed as the eagle. So when life is in the pit, when your life is in the pit, God is the place that we, that we turn to. He is the one we turn to. So we acknowledge that the pain is there. We, we seek help. We didn't get in here by ourselves. We're going to have to have some help to get out. Number three is we, we pray for healing. We have to become great prayers. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. Cast all your care on him for he cares for you. Talking about uh, God. And how, do you, when, how and when do you cast all your care on him? You cast your cares on him in that time of prayer. Cast all your cares on him for he cares for you. So we have to be great prayers. We have to ask God. Let us ask God for his grace. And grace is not just a, a, a thing of forgiveness. Grace is like strength. It's help. It's power. And you see this in Hebrews chapter 4. And there in Hebrews 4.15, I, I know you know this verse very well. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Then comes 4.16. Since we have that kind of a high priest who understands what, what, what life's all about, therefore, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace. Now, what kind of grace is it? Grace to help in time of need. There's help and encouragement from God. We need to be asking for God's wisdom. James chapter 1, verse 5, if, if anyone, if, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We need to be asking for God's wisdom. You say, what is wisdom? Anyway, I'm, I'm asking God for wisdom all the time. If, if I were to give you a definition of wisdom, this would be it. Wisdom is to see things as God sees them. To see them like God sees them, to have his perspective on things. And sometimes we are praying for the wrong thing, expecting the wrong thing, headed in the wrong direction because we don't really understand what the problem is. We have not seen it from God's perspective yet. And so he says, if any of you lack wisdom, if you don't know what's going on, it's time for you to be talking to me. Because I feel you. And even if you do think you know what's going on, it's still time to be talking to me because you may not be right. Sometimes we're praying for the wrong thing because we don't really understand what the problem is. We need to start with wisdom. Help me to see this situation as God sees it. Let us pray for God's honor. This is one of the, uh, uh, just an interesting uh, incident in the life of Israel, in the life of Moses for me. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 9, it's verses 25 through 29. And Moses is recounting to the people of Israel all the, all the things that they've gone through. And he thinks back to the time when God got so mad at Israel, he was just ready to just zap them all and get rid of them all. And, and usually it was Moses who was wanting to do that, and God would have to stop him. 
But this time, God was so mad, he said, I'm just done. I'm sick and tired of these people. I'm, gonna, I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to nuke this place. And Moses said, oh, no, 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 no. It, it, it's funny to listen to Moses uh, talking to God about this. And he said, no, no, Lord, if you do that, you know, what are the people around you going to think? These are your people, and you brought them out here. And if all of a sudden they just get vaporized by something that you do, what is the rest of the world going to think about you? He said, God, you can't do that. That's not an option for you because your honor is at stake. That was just an interesting way for a guy to approach God about the whole thing. He said, God, you can't let these people fail. Look, so he talks about it in Deuteronomy 9, 25. Let's go ahead and read here. So this is Moses just looking back over the history. He says, so I fell down before the Lord the 40 days and nights, which I did because the Lord had said he would destroy you. He's talking to the Israelites now. He said, remember this? I prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord God, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Please don't destroy them. Remember your servants, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Do not look at the stubbornness of this people or at their wickedness or their sin. Otherwise, the land from which you have brought us may say, because the Lord was not able to bring them to the land which he had promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. You're going to look bad, God. You're going to look bad. And you don't want to do that. So let's, let's, let's get back together here and let's make this work. Let's keep the nation going. And you know, sometimes I think when you pray, you need to be praying for the honor of God. God, I don't know what has to happen here, but just remember who you are. And, and I'm one of yours. Please, uh, don't, don't, don't let yourself down. Remember your own honor, your own name, your reputation. And help me. Let us ask for the power to speak. The courage to speak face-to-face with people. You know, when, when things are out of whack, there's two different situations you can come up with here. When things are out of whack between you and people. Sometimes you know that somebody else is mad at you, that you've offended them. And, and this is what Jesus said about this. This is Matthew 5, 23 and 24. He says, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, now you're going to church, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And he said, man, if, if, if things are not right between you and somebody else and you know that there's a problem there, go fix that. Then come back and see me. Then come back to church. Isn't that what he says? And then there's the other side of it. Sometimes someone else had done something against us. And we're just kind of vexed about it. We're upset about it. They may not know about it, but we know about it, and we're feeling kind of bad about it. And that's the other end of it. It's Matthew 18. If your brother sins, and some of the translations add against you, but that, that's a translation thing. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that, and so on and so forth. You know the the rest of this verse here. But this is the case of, of what happens when someone has done something wrong uh, to you. He says, I want you to go and talk with them. Whether it's them being offended with something you've done or whether they've done something against you, he says, hey, let's talk, let's talk. It's courage. 
You have, to, you have to have courage to do that kind of thing. Let us ask for the power to forgive all wrongs. Jesus set the example for us in Luke 23 and 34. Jesus was saying from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments. And so uh, forgiveness is huge. Forgiveness is a big thing. But Jesus sets the example. And let us thank God for our pain. That's a hard one, isn't it? I know uh, last week uh, Pete was up here. Pete Coons was up here, and he was talking about cancer and about something that one of his, uh, one of the doctors or one of the counselors, chaplains or whatever at the Cancer Center of America where he went, was talking to him about it. And he said, you know, before this is all over, you're going to thank God for your cancer. That's an amazing thing. He said, you will thank God for your cancer. What's he talking about? And, and what am I talking about? Let's thank God for our pain. Let us thank God for our pain. I'm not saying for the bad, the bad thing that happened, but for the pain. Because why? Because it, it's the pain that drives us to the doctor. People don't go to the doctor unless they're hurting. But when they hurt, then they do go to the doctor, and that's probably the best, thing, best decision they could possibly make at that point, is to go and, and get something fixed. And so Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20. Paul is writing to uh, the Ephesian church. He's always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Giving thanks for all things. Well, that, that, that covers a lot of territory there, doesn't it? 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In every circumstance, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And you know, the, what I'm saying is this, this is a thanksgiving where regardless of what the circumstances are, he said, look, give thanks. And so we learn to thank God for our pain because it's pain that, that brings us to him, that drives us to him. And let us pray for perseverance and patience. That's another part of our prayer. Perseverance, patience, long-suffering. You know, if you go through the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse, 20, verse 23, you come to the fourth one. It says love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Or in some translations, it say patience. Or it might even say perseverance, which is very close in meaning. Love, joy, peace, patience. There it is. One of the gifts of the Spirit is patience, perseverance. And you're thinking, well, I, I have the Spirit. And so I, I guess I've got the patience or the perseverance that I ought to have. No, I, most of us don't. If we're sitting back and we're waiting for all this patience and all those fruits of the Spirit to just come pouring in over top of us and oozing out, and all that, we're probably doing the wrong thing here because the Bible teaches us in other places to pray for all this stuff. It isn't just something that God gives, but it's also something we must desire. And so we pray for it. So in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11, this is, the, this is just an example of what I'm talking about. In verses 9, 10, and 11, Colossians, Paul is praying. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. Well, he's not praying, but he's saying, I'm, I'm telling you what we've been praying for you. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Okay, so now we're just starting to get through the list here. And so we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that, drop down to verse 11, that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Why? For the attaining of all steadfastness. And patience. 
Now, Paul's been praying hard for these people that they might receive steadfastness. I thought that was a gift of the Spirit or fruit of the Spirit. Well, yeah, but it also comes because we pray. We ask for it. We desire it. So we live in a society that wants everything just now. Patience and perseverance is just not our strong suit in any way. And so we, we watch TV shows where there's a problem somewhere in the show that comes up, and, and in, in 22 minutes of programming, the problem is solved. Or we go to the movies, and, and, and at the beginning of the movie, there's some huge problem, world problem, something that has to be taken care of, and, and, and in, in about two hours, the whole problem is solved, man. That's how it is. But that's not reality. That's not how things happen. It takes time. So we pray about these issues. We pray on this line that, uh, that we've been talking about. We don't give up. We acknowledge. We acknowledge uh, our, our, our problems. We seek help. We pray. And this is the last one. We focus on the future. In this, these verses, Philippians 3, 13 and 14, are, ought to be the theme verse of every Christian. Brethren, I count out myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press on toward the mark, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. God had a dream for Paul. Paul could not pursue God's dream until he forgot the past and started pressing toward that dream. If we're going to dream God's dream for us, we have to put our past behind us and start pressing toward God's dream for us. And the question is, how do we get started? You start by getting into Christ. And how do we get into Christ? The Bible has a simple answer for that. It's Galatians 3, 26 and 27. The apostle says, for you are all children of God by faith. How do you, how do you become a child of God? You are all children of God by faith. There it is, faith. And then he goes on to say, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Faith, baptism, we put on Christ. We are now in Christ. And we go forward with God's blessing, God's help, God's courage, God's wisdom. Everything that God has to give us becomes ours. All the fruits of the Spirit and the right to pray. And my question today is, is there someone here today who's ready to get into Christ, put on Christ? And if there is, then as we sing this hymn of invitation, we ask you to please come to the front, ready to confess your faith, ready to live the rest of your life for God, and ready to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's stand and sing.